Welcome to The Whole Marketer, where we look at the holistic skills, the technical skills, soft skills, leadership skills, and personal understanding that marketers of today need to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow. We're here to ensure that marketers feel supported and empowered to have successful and fulfilling careers and lives as a whole. Hello, and welcome to The Whole Marketer podcast. Today's episode is a very special episode. Firstly, because it's our 100th episode. That's right, 100 episodes of The Whole Marketer. And secondly, because this podcast was recorded live as part of our first The Whole Marketer live event. In today's podcast, we were joined by the wonderful Daryl Fielding. In this episode, Daryl talks about the thinking behind the infamous Dove campaign, skills that she believes marketeers of today need to possess, and well, shares really openly and frankly around the lessons that she's learned in her career and much, much more. This episode will look and feel different to the previous 99 as it was recorded in front of a live audience at our whole marketer event in February. I hope you enjoy this special episode and thank you so, so much for being part of our journey so far. Your positive feedback and listens is not what only drives me, but those that also help bring these podcasts to life to keep going. So here's to the next 100. And if you want to hear more about our future events, go to www.thewholemarketer.com. Enjoy. So I'm not going to do the usual introduction because, I mean, this lady here needs no introduction. We have Daryl Fielding, ladies and gentlemen, on the stage with us this afternoon. If you want to clap, you can clap. (laughs) I'm going to start with a big juicy question, as I always do on the Whole Marketer podcast. And today's big juicy question is, what skills do you believe marketeers of today need to possess to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow? Well, that's a huge question and I could create a very, very big list. But one of the things I think is super important is commercial nows. And I think there's a very big risk in the industry at the moment that marketing and branding is sort of being slightly depositioned. And if we're not careful, we're going to become the stupid people with crayons. And that certainly doesn't sit well with me. And I think we need to really understand the organization's objectives and commercial imperatives and wrap our heads around the business and acquire those commercial skills. Yeah, I think that would probably be one of the big ones for me. Fully understanding the brand as well. I sort of would say that, wouldn't I? Because I've written a book on that topic. But I think seeing that bigger picture is really, really important for marketers. And particularly if you're at the entry level, because so many jobs now are so very specific and deep and expert. If you're doing, you know, programmatic management or you're doing the social media management or a lot of these very, very big fragmented channels, you need to know so much about how to do that well in detail and you know it's a lot to do but if you're not careful you're you're sort of in that tunnel and you don't really connect with the bigger point of it all which is helping the organization achieve its objectives most of those are financial even if you're in the charity sector you're probably still trying to drive donations and and fundraising they could be other objectives but there's mostly a financial imperative and I find 
commercial skills in marketers are actually somewhat lacking actually and I think that's a shame. I had a rather amusing event recently. I did a negotiation skills training workshop and you know you teach the various stages and then the last one is the mother of all role plays and it was about a sort of contract between a whiskey distillery and a facilities management company and you know there was lots of financial numbers in there and the team that come to the training could not do the role play because they didn't understand things like margin profit turnover you know they were relatively senior people in the industry so you know I was a little bit taken aback by the lack of commercial acumen and getting to grips with that and when an awful lot of marketers grew up in FMCG, you start life running a sort of mini P&L, and you, you might start off with the uh, fragrance-free deodorant skew, but you're certainly looking at that like a little business, and you just get bigger and bigger and bigger business as you go, and that's not happening so much anymore. In many marketing organisations, you've got the commercial people, and then you've got what is effectively marketing communications that are called the marketing department, and you might go, well, we don't really need to know all that profit and loss stuff. But what often happens is you end up being bullied by the commercial people because you can't even have a conversation with them about why they want you to do what they're asking you to do. And I think whether you're in a business where you're owning the money or you're in a business where you're owning the marketing budget and delivering the Marcoms, it will still behove you to be able to have that commercial conversation with senior people in your organisation because otherwise you'll get somebody who owns the money coming at you saying we want awareness you know and then because they've heard it you know they've heard that's what that what's needed but then you can't challenge them or inquire about why are we targeting this particular group or who are we targeting what's the reason for this product why did you invent this product what are we trying to accomplish with this new thing you want me to launch with my crayons and my awareness so I think really gripping the commercials in an organisation is probably not the most happy picture to paint for everybody. But, you know, you can stay as the stupid people with crayons or you can get with the programme and understand business. That's where I prefer to be, I have to say. And the stupid people with crayons are never going to be the chief executive, let me tell you that for nothing. <laughs> That's completely true. It's completely true. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. As you know, one of the core principles of the whole marketer is about leaving that long-term commercial agenda. And you have to have the profit and loss account understanding, yeah. how you can influence every single line, mm. how you set the KPIs, mm. how you ensure that there's budget to measure them, how you talk the board's language. And if you're not doing that, as you say, you will be in that colouring in department. <laughs> yeah. and, and to be fair, you know, there might be folk who want to just stay in that, if you like, artistic space. And I, I would respect that and think that's fine. But if you have ambitions in another direction, then figuring out the business part of it is, is really important. This is not difficult. We're not talking about differential calculus here, are we? It's, you know, adding up in percentages most of the time. You know, people have said to me in other training courses, oh, I don't like percentages. And you go, well, did you get a maths O-level, GCSE? You know, they mostly have, and that's all you need to bring to bear. It's not, you know, not that hard. No, and it's probably even less than an O-level. But it's interesting. I find it really interesting. I, I, I must admit, you know, most of us have got that little bit of entrepreneurial talent, haven't we, if we're in marketing? So, actually, I find it quite interesting to figure out how do I grow the business, how do I achieve things, and how do I measure that? And talking about those choices that you've made on your own career journey... Yeah and career goals that you may have had, because as you just said there, I wanted to be in that part of the business that was leading, where you're managing that P&L. What career goals did you have? 
Do you know, I don't think I had any much. I know there's that sort of squiggly career thing that goes on. I think I had a more abstract notion that I'd be a success. And a boyfriend did make a comment about what I might be successful at at one point, but I probably couldn't repeat it on a podcast. But I, I sort of had this idea that I wanted to be good at... I think I was really keen to be good at what I did. And I think it was mostly goals driven by being excellent. And I spent a lot of my career in advertising and worked for some fantastic agencies and in particular the one I feel was always my alma mater was low actually at the time it was probably if I'm honest the second best creative agency in the UK but really vying with BBH all the time for its excellence but what I liked about that company I liked about working there was it was completely driven around outstanding creativity and I think I've always had a drive for excellence and where can I apply that so I don't think I ever thought I'd ever amount to much really I never had an ambition to be a chief executive or title here or, or whatever I just wanted to be really good at stuff does that give you a good enough answer I'm sorry if that's a bit lame that, well, that's your answer. It doesn't have to be good enough. I mean, and it's interesting that actually you didn't have that career goal, but yet look where you are now. Well, yes, yes. And tell us, tell us, where are you now? Well, where I am now is I'm the sort of person that when people ask me at a party, what do you do? It bores the shit out of them because I've actually, I've got a portfolio of jobs. So I now have learned to say, I have a portfolio of jobs and hope they don't ask me anything else because most people aren't interested in, in anyone, are they? But if they say, well, like what? I then begin and I see their eyes glaze over. So the short answer is most of my week, I spend running a medium-sized charity called the Marketing Academy Foundation. Many of you will have heard of the Marketing Academy. The Marketing Academy Foundation is their charity arm, independent legal entity. But what we do is we enable career starts in marketing for young adults from challenging backgrounds. And that's just brilliant. It's great to do that. Our industry is relentlessly middle class. The whole of the creative industry is relentlessly middle class. It's just not fair. And there's amazing talent out there that comes from backgrounds where they don't get the access, they don't get those internships, they don't get a parent that can help them with a CV and an interview, but they're really, really bright. So we go out and find those people and we get them jobs in places like Amazon, William Grant, Nomad Foods, TSB, British Art Foundation, and, and, and. So I spend two days a week doing that, which is just brilliant. And if anybody would like one of our young people, then you know, you know where to find me. We're on the web like everyone. And then I'm on, a, well, several boards. I'm on the board of the British Heart Foundation, a couple of other smaller charities, and I'm on a commercial board, which is the Association of Certified and Chartered Accountants. And they go, why do you, why do you want to do that? Well, they didn't need more accountants. They needed people to give them a bit of, you know, a lens on, on their brand and their marketing. And they're a global organisation helping people from sometimes the wrong side of the tracks into careers in finance. They're an anti-establishment set up to take on the status quo of accountancy actually originally being for the privileged so they're very inclusive in their agenda so that's why it appealed to me. There seems to be a theme there Daryl around being a rebel and bringing those people in from other walks of life and disadvantaged backgrounds and stirring the pot. Where's, where's that come from? Well 
Well, I suppose I think I've had an enormous value about fairness and I think it comes from, it's a very values-led agenda for me. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. In fact, I, you know, we didn't have a bathroom until I was eight. We used to have to go to a neighbour's once a week for a bath. But my dad did really well in life, so we, I was, we were upwardly mobile. So I ended up having actually a really good education. But I think that sense of, and stories about my dad's youth and how poor he was as a child infused my values about people should be able to get somewhere based on their ability, not which bottom they popped out of at the start of their life. And I think that's really why I get out of bed to do that. It is outrageous. It is absolutely we're outrageous. We're very serious, Yeah, we? we're getting very serious. <laughs> there we go. And as you've mentioned, you know, you've gone from agency side roles, working in some of the biggest agencies and some mm. of the biggest briefs to holding client side marketing roles. Mm. You jump to the other side of the fence, as we like to say, and the trustee board roles, mm -hmm. heading mm -hmm. up charities. Are there any key moments of each of those kind of pivots that happened and what drove each of them? Yes, I think probably just a sense of being able to achieve something and make an impact, I think. I got to a point in my agency career and I was always more on the client management side than the local office management. I was always delivering work for global clients rather than being a chief executive of an office, which is the alternate career path. And I just got to a point where I thought, Do you know what, I want to be the person that says yes. You know, I want to be the person who is going to be empowered to accept great work and encourage great work and get great work and it just felt like a slightly more grown-up job at that time and you know I don't know if we're a mix of clients or agencies but it was really at that point in my life where I thought do you know what I think I'm done with this I think I need something where I can be more empowered to make an impact. The shift to portfolio was more about wanting more life and less work. You know, I had a few upsets in my personal life. I split up with my first husband, which was traumatising. I then went back to a job because I needed something I knew to sort of steady myself at that time. And then I did that for a couple of years. I got a new husband off the internet, which was brilliant. Uh, not what I was looking for, funnily enough, but that's what happened. And so I felt a bit more steady personally and, and therefore able to go it alone, if you like, and walk away from that, you know, big corporate job and go, how can I fill my life with things that are rewarding? I still wanted to earn a living. I still wanted to work. But I just felt I couldn't do that on my own when I came back from Zurich, when I came back from working at Mondelez. So... It was really about, you know, having more life and less work at a particular point in my, in my life. So, yeah, and I, you know, to be honest, I probably have about the same amount of work, just less money now. <laughs> but I'm a lot happier. That's nice. Yeah, and it's that chase and pursuit of happiness, yeah, isn't it, exactly, that, we're all, that exactly. we're all after. And what have you learned about yourself as you've been either on those pivots or in certain roles? Oh Yes, well, I think everybody regularly disappoints themselves, don't they? And there's a couple of things that I guess that I've had to learn. One is that I am super task orientated. And I didn't realise that until some people who had my best interest at heart at work finally stuck my head down the toilet and flushed it and basically made me realise that I needed to put as much emphasis on people as I did on getting the work done. And it was odd, really, because I would, never didn't care about the people I worked with. And nobody, you know, since God was a boy, would have ever said that I was an unkind person, a very kind and generous, I think. But at work, I was just so driven and it was all about the task. 
And if you had a lot of people who wanted to do that task with you, it was fantastic. But I needed to learn those motivational skills and I needed to know that not everybody is like you and not everybody just thinks the work is all that matters. So I had to learn to be more people-oriented, actually. And it was Ogilvy that taught me that. We had a training program there where you had 360 degree unfiltered feedback and one of the questions on there was what does this manager need to be better at their job and one person put psychotherapy <laughs> which you know came quite hard but I think if you unpacked it it wasn't that I was a horrible person but actually that I was just completely task orientated I think the other thing that sort of made me that way was I was always the person they piled in to fix a big problem you know I I was always, oh, you know, this client hates us. We're on six months' notice. They're half the revenue in the company. Who's going to fix that? Oh, we'll bring, you know. I was like, I don't know if you remember the person that used to put out fires on oil rigs. There used to be somebody called Red Adair. I was like the Red Adair of the agency. I'd be thrown in. And of course, you know, in an emergency like that, you're getting people in the lifeboats effectively, and your task orientation is what works. So there was a sort of unhelpful loop of I was given jobs that needed that task orientation. You know, we kept the businesses. You know, I fix the problem and so I think it was reinforced so in an emergency I'm actually really good but I have learned to be more people orientated and interestingly working with charities is fascinating because of course you're dealing with volunteers so you know they don't have to do any of it so if there's one thing that having a good people orientation will give you is the ability to get people to do things for nothing so that probably is a bit of a torture test of my newfound ability to motivate people and not just be like we're after to that task. So that's probably what I've learned the most is that balance of people and, and task. And is that the same lesson as a leader as well? Yeah, I would absolutely say so. Yes, I think people need to be very, very clear what you want them to do. And I think you have to equip them and you have to make them want to do it if you're really good. And I had a great piece of advice given to me by somebody at Vauxhall, actually, the car company. And he said, if things aren't happening with people, you need to ask three questions. Firstly, do they know what to do? Secondly, can they do it? And thirdly, do they want to do it? And I regularly use that piece of advice in thinking through a leadership problem. Because mostly you're looking at, as a leader, you're looking a lot of the time at things that aren't quite right, aren't you? And what, what, what do you need to do? And do they know what to do? Have you given clear instructions to people? Are they clear what's expected? Is that decomposed in a way that they understand for their job role? And actually, if you're right at the top, is that then cascaded through the organisation? Is it joined up? So that's one thing. And um, funnily enough, when I moved from agency life to client organisations, agencies are not that directive, actually. And you would have a riot on your hands if you were as directive, arguably, as you may need to be in a brand owner or a big organization and I had a team meeting I wanted to integrate shopper marketing into our marketing toolkit at Mondelez and so I decided I would get some industry experts to come and talk to my direct reports about that I got them all in and we had presentations about shopper marketing how it was measured blah, blah, blah. and then about a month later I said to them I was having my team meeting I said how's the shopper marketing project coming along and they went what shopper marketing project and I went well, we had the meeting and they went, yeah, and? I said, well, I brought all the people, I flew them into Zurich. We had a whole day, you know? And they said, well, we didn't ask us to do anything. I said, well, what do you think I did this meeting for? Your entertainment. 
And they said, we've no idea why you had that meeting, Daryl. And while we're at it, we often don't know what you want at all. <laughs> now, luckily, I hadn't been there very long at this point. So we had a bit of a, you know, we had a bit of a, one of those meetings. And I realised that in an agency, I probably had hinted that I might like it integrated into the, the you know, the customer journey modelling we were doing. But I hadn't been specific enough. And what they wanted was for me to go, OK, Catherine, I would like you, please, to do this, this, this and this. And that's what the level of direction they expected from me. And actually, for me to do that at that time, I felt physically sick if I, if I was that directive. Because in an agency where I'd spent many, many years, if you were that specific, you'd have had a revolt because people want to do things in their own way. So I had to figure out how that bit of the equation, do they know what to do? I had to become more directive. It's still not my natural way, I don't think. I think I'd rather sort of set a goal and let people accomplish it in their own way. But what you have to understand is not everybody's built that way. And they just want a bit more specificity about, you know, do they know what to do? So the second one is, can they do it? And, you know, that's a whole mix of capabilities and money, time. You know, if you ask people to do things, those are the things you have to give them. You have to make sure that they have the tools, time and talent that they actually need. So then the last thing is, do they want to do it? You know, how do you motivate people? How do you set an inspiring vision? And funnily enough, at Vodafone, we had a really great chief executive who was very task orientated. He and I got on like a house on fire, but he came to his new job there with a 10 point plan. So we had a 10 point plan of deliverables. And I remember saying to him, don't we need a bit of a vision? You know, and he was, no, 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 we need a 10 point plan. That's what I did in Holland. It was fantastic, we had a 10 point plan. So we, we, had, we had the 10 point plan. And then after a year of trying to make people you know deliver the 10-point plan we went back and found out that they didn't want to do it because there was no vision so you know as a leader you also have to inspire you have to set that vision you can't have one without the other in a very big <laughs> biggest brand in the country we had a 10-point plan but nobody really wanted to do it because they'd no idea why they were doing it do they want to do it is really really important and people's motives vary very much and if you've got a team you know you have to be sensitive about what it is that that they love and what it is that makes them get out of bed every day with regard to the objectives that you're setting and creating that vision. There's a huge debate about purpose branding. I'm quite a fan of it, but not applied willy-nilly and badly. But, you know, if you have a brand with purpose, one of the reasons it's successful is because the staff are motivated. And that's not a shabby thing to have. Whether it's what goes out there in public as the brand's positioning, well, you know, you may or may not have that connected but if people get up every day to think they're doing something worthwhile then of course they're going to give that discretionary effort so yeah do they know what to do can they do it do they want to do it I think that's a really good sort of simple way of thinking about leadership it really is and it is that combination of taking the time to dream big and set the vision and then having that 10-step road plan I always yeah. I always liken it to the marathon analogy yeah. you know you wouldn't ask someone to run a marathon if you didn't tell them why they were running it the cause that they were running it for Absolutely. what the journey is going to be like the things that might be difficult on the way yeah. or give them any training to run the marathon yes. you know yeah. that's what's going to make people say yes or no yeah. the clarity and the support along the way absolutely and there's so much I know you've had Chris Hurst and the no bullshit leadership I haven't read his book and I do want to but what I I'm always frustrated by is the disproportionate credit given to the vision and the lack of credit given to the operational capability and I think operational leadership is a huge part of delivering it period 
And we don't claim it as a leadership competence, but it absolutely is. You know, you hear so often, oh, she's just a good doer. And the she's in this room who are good doers claim it as a blooming leadership capability. Stop saying, I'll do that and start saying, I'll lead that. Because operational effectiveness is, is incredibly important. And if you don't have that, your marathon analogy, exactly. If you don't have that, no amount of visionary hope is going to actually deliver the training, the route navigation, the diet, whatever it is you have to run a marathon. I'm never going to run a marathon. No, likewise. But I understand you have to do quite a bit of stuff to be able to do it. In fact, I was telling everyone this morning that, you know, you'll never find me running unless I'm in danger. So I completely won't be ever running a marathon. There you go. I've said it. Well, I got chased by cows recently after a fairly major operation and I discovered I could run after all. So, you never, yeah, as you say you know in jeopardy you'd be surprised what you could achieve in jeopardy of danger we run <laughs> and and what i also was hearing that you when you were mentioning about the difference in leadership styles there between agency yeah. side and client side and there are a mix in this room mm -hmm. and those that have also jumped that fence as well looking at a few one felt like a sense of emergency so of course we're going to be directive which i just think there's an element of not forgetting the role that the environment plays mm. I always think about an analogy that someone told me around team building or leadership, mm. which is there is no time for egos or how someone feels about doing a good task or whatever that may be in an ER room. You know, as someone comes into that hospital, everyone's goal is to keep that person alive. And if they're saying IV, they're not saying IV, please, or if you wouldn't mind, that'd be so kind. They're saying mm. IV, stand clear. You know, <laughs> they're giving clear directive yeah, action yes. because the goal is known, the intent is the same. Mm. And I think what it sounds like to me is that actually that's what was going on there. You had a, you've got to come in and put this fire out. You've got to come in and save this relationship with the client. There isn't really that much time for the niceties around it. We've got to get the job done. Yes, and the psychotherapy comment was for somebody who was in the team in an emergency turnaround. So maybe he was just being a bit harsh, but I think. I think I probably, I mean, you know, a pitch situation in an agency is also a bit of an emergency. You all know what the goal is, you've got to win the business. But I did set myself a goal on one pitch, which was to achieve the pitch and have a really happy team. I did do it, we didn't win, but what was really interesting was normally, and I'd spent a quarter of a million pound of the agency's money on the pitch. That wasn't out of order in terms of the scale of the business that we were seeking. But what normally happens if you don't win is that the team tear each other apart and blame each other afterwards. And that didn't happen. There was solidity to a man on, we don't care if we didn't win, it was bloody brilliant. The work was fantastic. The pitch was fantastic. The team spirit was fantastic we didn't quite get there in terms of the outcome but I was still quite proud of it and I was proud of that afterwards where everyone went that was the one of the best experiences of my career so it was a pity we didn't get the business as well really but I did feel that I could do an emergency and keep everybody together as a team and I I definitely set it for myself as a goal having really got a little bit more insight around my best and my worst because they're often two sides of the same coin aren't they you know brilliant in a crisis I'll get you all in the lifeboats I'll probably save your life you might hate me at the time but you'll thank me later because that was a lot of my career you know, to, to something that's more of a peacetime leader, if you like, and what do you need in, under those circumstances? So you talked about that team there that you <coughs> ran the pitch with having yes. one of the highlights of their career. Mm. 
And when I was introducing that you were coming this afternoon, the lady here is the brainchild behind the Dove campaign, of which most people in this room have always been told, make it as good as Dove. Make the insight <laughs> so as strong I, as Dove. <laughs> make the insight as strong as the insight in Dove. Make, you know, make the brand purpose so strong that it has the longevity it has today. I have to ask the question, you know, that best in class sample that we're all being beaten over the head with, and still beaten over the head with, you know, our clients at the moment is even using that in their training example today. Most of the audience know the reality it actually takes to do such a thing, mm. right? The brand strategy, the insight, the communication platform, the brand idea, all of that. Mm. Tell us, tell us the journey. Well, I will tell you a little bit about it. I mean, I do do a very nice talk about the true story of the Dove journey, actually, but... I think what irritates me about the narrative now is that it's told as though it was the seamless logic of a bunch of geniuses, and it so was not that. So what do I think it was a story of? I think it was a story, actually, of quite good leadership, and, and I can tell the story with a leadership lens as well, and have, but it was about setting a really big goal about working together as a team to find a really good insight but we didn't ask the customer. Trusting one's instincts, working ball-breakingly hard, failing, getting up again, starting again, being determined, a monumental effort on stakeholder management as well because there was a real gender difference about understanding the insight that we discovered. What do we do about that? It's difficult to sort of sum it up without talking for an hour and getting the slide deck out because we felt as though we were sort of crawling over broken glass to the light and it was at many times failure, muddle, fear and just overcoming all of those things. And I, and I quite like to tell the story because I think if people are in the midst of producing something for a brand that if it's not going well, they think they're doing it wrong. I mean, the journey to get that campaign did not go well. I mean, it, there were lots of things that went wrong. We had the first shoot we did, we had to reshoot. We really did kind of have to deal with some really difficult challenges. So we finally got it together almost on the day that it went to press. We only had a photograph. We didn't have an idea, we didn't have a headline. We just got there in the end through a sense of direction, I think, an absolute drive to get to somewhere that we sort of didn't even know what it looked like. So I do want people to know that it, I know that one person who's very famous for training and swearing always says, you know, they had the insight and only 2% of women thought they were beautiful. That was a PR story. We did that research once we had the ads. It wasn't the beginning of the journey. There was no insight like that at the beginning of the journey. I remember saying, you know, we need some data to, to put in the PR press release. Let's do a bit of a flimmy flammy. We'd got everything by then. We did do customer inquiry, if you like, but we spoke to psychologists. We didn't go and ask the customer. So this sort of A equals B equals C logic really irritates me in the way the story's told now. And I occasionally offer to go and tell the true story, but the invitation is never accepted. Well, we'll find your platform to tell the oh, true no, story. I, I tell it to lots of people. Okay, just good. In this particular instance. Because it's actually, I'm, I'm, I'm almost like sighing out with relief here mm. in the sense of, you know, if we think about all those data sources that we look at in order to mine, to find that deep-rooted emotional yeah. connection, insight, mm. to know that that was almost retrofitted to yeah. a degree, it's like, oh, well, does anybody else feel like that? Somebody asked me the other day at a do, why is most marketing so shit? 
And actually, my answer was because excellence is hard. If it wasn't, everybody'd have it, wouldn't they? You know, doing something outstanding is really tough. It's really hard. And I think going from the insight, we had an instinct about the insight. We started with an intuition, with an instinct. And we didn't go on our instinct. We went and validated that instinct by looking at academic papers, talking to psychologists. And so it came from the customer, but we didn't go and ask them. And I think that finding really good insights often comes from somewhere else. It comes from academia. You know, go and look at academic papers on the matter that you're currently thinking about. We always look at customer data, but sometimes those big leaps of insight come from really different sources. Mining your own data has not been my experience of finding anything particularly great, actually, ever. Before today's podcast, when I asked you to come along to be a guest, you said to me, well, I can speak openly and honestly now that I'm not, you know... Don't belong to anyone belong much. To anyone. <laughs> um, do you want to share that open, honest piece around? This is not a question on my sheet, so I'm making it up, everyone. No, I'm, I'm now bricking myself. Oh, okay. Is there something that you're... Thoughts on the industry, something, you know, I've got top five pet peeves, for example, for myself, of the profession. Yeah. Is there anything that you just like, yeah, that's the thing that winds you up every single time? Yeah, actually, there is something that I feel particularly vexed about and avid about is the lack of investment in people and training, particularly at the junior end. And where do I get started on it? I mean... I talk to a lot of companies, particularly in the context of getting them to have a diverse entry-level talent. That's the charity I run, that's what we're trying to accomplish. People are sort of, oh no, we want the finished article. You know, we, we need people who can do the job already. We don't have a big training programme, you know. And you go, where do you think you're gonna get, you're just gonna nick other people's, that's kind of wrong. Companies should be taking people on at the start of their careers and training them and continue to train them. I had pretty good training throughout my career. And where I had gaps, I did actually go and buy some books and train myself. I think it is a particular challenge, and this is where I'm, with the greatest respect to everybody working for an agency, it is a particular problem in agencies who I think are over-resourced at the senior level with too many people paid far too much money, and that is denuding the rest of the pyramid of resource, the number of people, what they're paid and how they're invested in and how they're trained and therefore how skilled they are. And then people wonder why clients won't pay for their advice. Well, it's not very good half the time. So I think there should be the, a real focus on equipping our marketers, training them. Perhaps Mark Richardson and I might be fully aligned. It is around investing in training people in our industry. And everybody's tearing their hair out about the talent gaps and the talent crisis. Well, maybe you've got to grow your own now. And instead of complaining, how you fix that? Because otherwise you can have a bidding war for the talent that's out there now, and there's clearly not enough of it. Or you can go, OK, a bit like the NHS, actually. We've got to fill the pipeline from the bottom and we've got to equip our people. So the lack of investment in people in our industry is probably one of my big beefs at the moment. And it's not just because I happen to be in the charitable space where that's an aspect of it. It's been bothering me for years. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, the once a year, if, if at best, training course that's meant to be a broad sweep of everybody in their own personal yes, needs. Or, or won't pay for it. I, I don't know. You'd never have it in any other walk of life, would you? I mean, would you accept a doctor that hadn't been trained? Would you accept a lawyer that hadn't been... You know, we want to be professional, and yet we're not getting any qualifications or training. And we expect to be treated as professionals, accountants, lawyers doctors, you know, you look at pr practically every other walk of life. This has to stop being the preserve of the amateurs. It really does. I couldn't agree more. And one of the studies that I was privy to from the CIM was mm -hmm. that the majority of the focus of training was actually in that kind of digital programmatic space, because yes. it's a skill, it's a new skill that we need mm -hmm. to learn in the juniors, but nothing in the seniors. And you've got people that are now having to lead organisations that maybe have not refreshed their training, yeah. not at the forefront of their thinking, haven't had any training on the latest approaches, mm. and also tired and exhausted yeah. having yeah. to lead organisations. Yeah. Well, I think if you come up through a very specific pathway and you, you get maybe two promotions in, your perspective has got to be broader. Yeah. And if you've done those very narrow digital functions, you suddenly find yourself in a position where you're sort of expected to know more and you just have never had experience of that. Yes. One of the reasons I wrote the brand book was almost to tackle it from top and bottom mm -hmm. because I think brand is, as I said at the beginning, being depositioned. I think at the chief executive, sometimes it's all the sort of smoke and mirrors and the image advertising. You know, for me, brand is product and service and the reputation and there's not a chief executive in the land who doesn't care about that. Mm -hmm. And repositioning brand at the boardroom level, I think, needs to happen. But it also needs to happen at, you know, probably in the middle, but I think particularly at, at the bottom of the talent pipeline is, you know, if you're doing all these very small parts of the marketing mix, all you ever encounter with the title brand are the brand police that keep telling you, no, you can't do things. And so that's sort of a bit off-putting. But actually, if you don't understand brand, you'll never be able to argue with them because they might say, oh, no, you can't do that. But if you understand the brand from more than a corporate identity policing point of view, then you might, well, actually, how about we could do it this way? Because I've got this really great idea and I think it is on brand. But if you don't know what on brand even means, you're never going to be creative either or more creative. So I think there's a whole issue around understanding the bigger picture, moving the notion of brand back to where it always should be, which is about what the company does and what people think of what it does. And, and that will be delivered by more education and training. Yeah, it's those breadth and depth, isn't yeah, it? It's absolutely. that breadth of understanding absolutely. so that you know why you're doing that digital marketing campaign and that initiative and how it ladders up to the strategy, to the corporate goal, to the vision. Exactly. And it's not surprising also that one of the issues we also have is that actually we've got people that are wanting to come in. So we're having an industry shortage at that kind of ABM, BM level, which means that either people are leading teams where they can't get the resource in, or they're over-promoting people uh, into roles, and that's also creating a lot of gaps in the competence level. junior level roles, I've got them. I can get you people. No problem. Absolutely no problem with that. Yeah, I mean, why do you think people don't want to come into marketing? I think there's been a bit of a perception issue for a while, like the very stressful. And I think there's also a aspiration values piece that's happening with kind of the current generation that are more entrepreneurial, more beliefs around what they want to achieve. And a lot of people want to start their own company straight out mm. of kind of education. That would be my two reasons why I think it's happening. Not everywhere, but some places. I'm going to ask my last question, which is what one piece of advice would you give to marketers of tomorrow? Marketers of tomorrow. Oh, be curious, learn, I guess. There's so much interest in our industry, isn't there? Isn't it great? There's always new stuff. 
stay curious, be curious, ask questions, probably preaching slightly to the converted if you've come to a day like this. But yeah, I think be curious and learn. And as I started the conversation, understand the money. Well, thank you so much for your Pleasure. time, Daryl, and for coming all this way. So we really do appreciate You're it. You're so welcome. Thank you for such a lovely bunch of flowers. Oh. I haven't seen a oh, bouquet as gorgeous. I do. Yes, I do. Thank you so much. It was very kind. Round of applause for Daryl. Thank you for tuning into the Whole Marketer podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, follow and share. The Whole Marketer is here to support and empower you and your teams with the latest technical skills, soft and leadership skills and behaviours and personal understanding for a successful, fulfilling marketing career and life as a whole. For support, resources and more information on how we can help you to become a Whole Marketer and build Whole Marketing teams, go to www.thewholemarketer.com.